about the number of people that follow the Seders in Eretz Israel. Now, I recall very high numbers in the past. Some of these numbers are, are clopped down a little bit. Uh, it's sort of a sign of the times that, that many people in Israel have drifted away. But, but we, we're going to try our very best to uh, give you an idea of what is going on in Israel. Now, I don't have the details of the uh, survey, but this is what it came out. The majority of Israeli Jews read the Haggadah in its entirety at Passover Seders, which is nice, but it's only the majority. Here's what it said. Some 64% of Israelis said they read the entire Haggadah, including the part that's read after the meal. And uh, here it mentions the survey is Jewish People Policy Institute Survey for the Israeli Judaism Project. Well, that's who put it out. And in the survey, which they conducted in late 2017 and early 2018, 97% of Jews responded yes to the question, do you host or participate in a Passover Seder? 97% said they participate, but not all of them say the whole Haggadah. And that, that's part of the, uh, one of the issues that we, we have here, and we're going to see it a little further. The survey included seven Jewish-Israeli sectors, totally secular, secular traditional, traditional religious liberal, religious, religious Zionist, and Haredi. That means that, and you'll see, the, they say that 31% of the people are secular, totally secular. And still in all, 97% say they host a Seder or they go to one. That's amazing. Now, they don't read all the Haggadah, some of them are not from. Okay, I understand. But that almost every Jew in Israel attends a Seder. That's a phenomenal number. I don't think there's any mitzvah in the course of the year, including going to Shul Yom Kippur, I don't, in America at least, that I don't think there's anything that qualifies for what the, the Seder represents to us. So it's an opportunity through the Seder to, to reach people uh, in an unbelievable manner. Some 80% of the Haggadah readers keep kosher for Pesach. That's pretty sad, that they read the whole Haggadah and only 87% of them Keep kosher for Pesach. Sixty-three percent of Israeli Jews said they will clean their homes of all chametz. That leaves thirty-seven percent don't. <laughs> A little scary. Okay, but remember we have thirty-one percent total seculars there. Sixty-seven percent said they they take care to eat kosher for Passover food, both inside and outside the home. That's very very scary. That only thirty. That thirty-three percent. And not Machpid on eating, uh, you know, both inside and outside, only Kushla Pesach. But that does mean that a very big majority in Eretz Israel keep not only the Sedarim, but keep Kushla Pesach. The nice, uh, it's, I don't know if it's going up or going down, I cannot tell you, I don't have the details here. There were 3,000 respondents, and the chances of this being off is 1.8% as a maximum variation. So that's, I think, a significant numbers. Uh, we go on to the next part, 
which is about we call fake kosher for Passover in Israel, which means that they they caught a hundred they spot checking food vendors across Israel. They found over a hundred and fifty people displaying certificates not issued by the rabbinate. We talk about for Pesach. Rabbinate says that the public should be alert. Vendors could be selling non-kosher foods. Uh, over 150 businesses selling foods and drinks that is not kosher for Passover displayed fake certificates advertising their prices, kosher for the holiday. And uh, the rabbinate said that some restaurants and cafes that do not carry certificates at all the rest of the year, and in some cases are entirely non-kosher, are selling products such as seafood or pork, and they, they call themselves kosher for Passover. I had a situation this year for Pesach, right before Pesach. I don't know if I mentioned here, I don't think so. I get a call. There's a, there's a bakery in not far from where I am. I mean, it's not in Brooklyn, but it's just on the outskirts and uh, really very close. And uh, the, uh, this place over here has a bakery that's owned by a goy, and uh, he calls the place kosher for Passover. The hashkocha, there's a hashkocha all year, and there's a sign somewhere in the store saying the hashkocha that's saying that it's not kosher for Passover. He's not taking responsibility for Pesach. But the owner says it's kosher for Passover, and he makes products, and, not, and, the, product, and the equipment's not koshered. It's, it's amazing. An amazing thing. He's, he's putting this out, and this is going on for 15 years. I got involved, and Baruch Hashem, they took the, they took the sign down, and they, the rabbi put up a clear sign that it's not for Passover use at all, and there's no reference to Passover anymore. We got it within about a week of Pesach. It was a very interesting story. But that's here, and here I see that our 200, the 150 in Israel are having that problem. For some reason, they weren't able to get it done earlier, and uh, they, some of the cases they're going to give fines, and others they just uh, got them to take it down. But I, it's just a very unfortunate uh, part of the story. Now, I'm going to give you a little more insight into that story that I mentioned about the hotel. Of course, I can't tell you where it is, but it's in Yush- about which one it is, but it's in Yerushalayim, which is amazing. And it's got a very, very good Ashkacha all year round. I don't know the truth of this whole story, but I did contact a number of people regarding it, and so far the hotel has not answered me. Basically what happens is uh, a few weeks before Pesach, the hotel realized that the hotel was not going to be able to comply with the requirements of the rabbi that they have all year long, and they were, and, uh, they were told there's no hashkoch of a Pesach. The rabbi told them he's not doing Pesach. But the hotel failed to notify people about this. <laughs> So that's that's not funny. It's just pathetic. Um, three days before Pesach, uh, uh, they wanted to, uh, they wanted to put some wine and chocolate in the hotel rooms for the people when they're going to come because they, this is a relative. They want to send something over. the t- The hotel said it's um, you can only put in products that are acceptable to this rabbi, which they have all year round, even though they did without telling anybody that he had been, he had dropped the Ashkocha for Pesach. The people came, it was right before Bidikas Chametz, and they were supposed to have a first floor room. Uh, then they were told that they couldn't uh, fill the hotel before Pesach, they rented the first floor to others. Others mean not from people. 
So um, the next morning, they realized at breakfast that something serious is not in order, as breakfast was served outside with many uh, interesting people attending who were not the people you'd expect in a hotel like that. The food was brought into the hotel from some outside vendor. Uh, after the first days of Yom Tov, they left. And they asked for their money back. And the hotel refused. And that's where we are right now. Um, I got in contact right away with the hotel. The person in charge, the the the, the person who was uh, who was who was uh, who had the problem, had contacted me right away, and uh, and and I contacted the hotel, and so far we're waiting for some reply. Person I contacted the hotel says it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> he said I'm only booking the. Uh, I only do the booking. Uh, you have to speak to the owners. We're sending. I sent along your email to the owners, and now we have to wait a response. So that's the story over there. Um, I mentioned a little bit about uh, what's going on, what happened here in this country with some mislabelings, etc. But the most important one, I think, was the fact that a good friend of mine put out in an honest manner, that uh, a number of products were being sold by mistake in the kosher section, which means they particularly put it there and somebody didn't catch it, and there were products that were not kosher for Passover. I would like to point out that if you happen to have um, Dan and yogurt, it's not called Israel, but if you happen to have Dan and yogurt from Pesach, it seems that some of the Dan and yogurts were kosher for Pesach and some are not They're under the OU. And there's a four-cup package. And in the four-cup package, some of them are kosher Pesach, and some of them are not kosher Pesach. The one that's kosher Pesach says O-U-P, and the other one that just says O-U. And uh, the O-U said that you should not use those that say O-U, that are mixed together with the other ones, with the Pesach ones. You shouldn't have used it on Pesach. But it was not really chametz, and the the O-U gave out a telephone number. I have it in my office, I don't have it here, they all gave it a telephone number of how you could uh, find out uh, more information. I didn't really want to go too far into that, since it is after Pesach, but I thought it was an interesting uh, mix-up that was uh, quite uh, you know, important for some people. Now I come to my good friends in South Africa, and I say my good friends in South Africa because they are now my good friends in South Africa. South Africa is the country that gave us Kirov for Shabbos. You know the Shabbos project, that is from them. The Shabbos project that comes out in October, right around the Yom Tovim, uh, they, they have a, uh, a wonderful program for a Shabbos, and it's uh, trying to get people who have never experienced Shabbos to try to experience Shabbos. They do, uh, for the ladies, they do baking of challahs, they invite people to shul, and they have speakers, and maybe a kumzitz, and whatever they try to do. I don't know how all of it's done. I read some of it in the, the shul that I'm in. Nobody seems to walk in <laughs> because of that. And I've tried a little bit to invite people, and the people that I got were from already. So whatever it was, I can't tell you. It, it, it works, it doesn't work, at least, but they're trying it, and they're trying it worldwide. And it was all started by the chief rabbi of South Africa. He did a wonderful project himself in South Africa, and people became observant of that Shabbos, for that Shabbos alone. And some people took on to try it once a month or to convert and become real Shabbos observers. 
And he saw it was such a success, but that was all he thought of. And somebody told him, spread it around. And he did. And the next year, they got it in all different countries. It's almost it's worldwide now. And um, you know, I can't guess how many people it influences, but definitely it's big numbers. And that's what they did. Now, this story is what they're doing about kosher. We have been kept in the dark many, many, many times over and over again. I remember one person telling me, working for one of the cashless agencies, that two restaurants in this general area were closed because they were trafe. And there was never a mention of it. Never. There was nothing. It's no longer certified. It's just so funny how when they get very upset with the with the uh, with the owner, they say he's dropped him for gross cautious violations. But when he actually serves trafe, nobody tells you about it. Nobody tells you they serve trafe. If it gets out, okay, so you know. But we don't send any information out about trafe. That's what's happening here in this country. And with all of the scandals that we've had over the years, it's all very much in the when we're still in the dark everything is discussed behind closed doors there's no transparency whatsoever think about it i'm not going to go into mention any particular cases once went through all the cases in the last 10 years you can think the ones yourself and see how much transparency was there about what was going on i'm going to read a little bit to you from this amazing document which i got today 24th of Nisan, April 9th. This is from, his, from South Africa, signed by Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein, Rabbi Moshe Kurstag, Rosh Bastin, and Harold Novick, Chairman of the U Union of Orthodox Synagogues of South Africa. I'm just taking pieces. As already announced to the community, which is beautiful, they did announce it very many times already, we are launching two separate investigations in response to the Stan and Pete incident. Stan and Pete is the, the, uh, is the caterer that was caught with the tray of chickens. A forensic investigation on what happened at Stan and Pete and a broader expert assessment of our cashless supervision system. The forensic investigation in the interest of impartiality Neither Professor Billy Gundelfinger nor Grant Thornton, I don't really know who they are, will be conducting the forensic investigation, which will now be conducted by Bowman's attorneys, using a law firm to check what happened, who have their own internal forensic department. Now, Bowman's is one of the leading and most highly regarded legal form, firms in South Africa. And he goes on to discuss the honors that they got. I'm not interested in that. Um, and they, they, point, they appointed a fellow by the name of Mr. Jonathan Schlossberg, who was the former chairman of Bowman's, and he's going to be in charge of this. And this fellow, obviously a Jew, uh, has received many accolades for his work, including the International Who's Who Corporate Governance Lawyers Award in 2013. And he's considered to be one of the 10 most highly regarded individuals globally. 
I haven't had the opportunity to meet him yet, but Mr. Schlossberg sounds pretty good. The terms of reference for the Bowman's investigation are as follows. Two points. Bombshells. Whether the discovery of non-kosher chicken on Wednesday, the 28th of February, 2018, in the kitchen of Stan and Pete was an isolated incident or was part of a pattern of willfully bringing in non-kosher food into its kitchen. In other words, we found trefa chickens there. We don't know intent. Stan and Peter claiming didn't know anything about it. And we have to make the decision of whether or not there was actually uh, an intent and it was a continual thing. We want to find out. It's amazing. I don't know how they're going to do this, but that's what they're trying to do. And whether any such non-kosher food was served at functions to kosher customers and over what period this occurred, that's all one. And two, to the extent that this may have been part of a pattern of bringing in non-kosher food to establish how the kashra supervision system of the Bethden of South Africa with its mashkichim, inspectors, and other safety measures could have pre- circumvented and to recommended how, how the system can be improved to prevent this kind of possible breach from occurring again in the future. In other words, we admit we must have done something wrong. We missed it. We didn't see it. We didn't record it in the end, but we don't know how long it was going on. And, and there's something wrong with us if we were not able to catch it. So the, Rabbi Goldstein, so sein gesund, and uh, Rabbi Kurstag, and Mr. Novik are saying, we take the hit. The buck stops here. We are at fault, and we are going to change, and we want to know how. And the first thing they did, hire a fancy, fancy, schmancy law firm and, and with forensic investigation to try to find out what was going on. How they do this, I don't know, but they're going to try to find out, was it a pattern? Of, was he using it regularly? Was it intent? Was it not intent? And and they're going to study this thing. And they're probably putting in a lot of dollars into this. It doesn't sound like it's a cheap thing. It doesn't sound like they've been working for two hours around it. It sounds like they're going to be on this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they're going to come up with little pieces of information together. Come up with the truth. I don't know if it's going to be that Stan and Pete are going to and uh, suffer any loss or, or there's going to be any law cases or I don't know about that part. The main part is they want to know number two. What did we do wrong? How could we improve? Who are they writing this to? Dear community members. I'm, and I don't live there, by the way. <laughs> I live right here. And they're sending it all over the world. Khatasi, Avisi, Poshati, something went wrong. I'm taking the hit. Wow, big stuff, but it's not over. Next point, the assessment of the cashless supervision systems. As indicated in our most recent public communique, we have approached the Association of Cashless Organizations, ACO, which is based in Chicago, and the International Governing and Accreditation Body of Kashrus organizations across the globe. The ACO have agreed to send three of their most senior rabbinic executives to South Africa next month to fully assess 
all current Kashrus supervision systems of the best in. Everything. Sit here as long as you need. By the way, they're paying a lot of money because I know what they charge per day. And I know they don't go for nothing and it doesn't take five minutes to get to South Africa. There's a nice bunch of money that is paid to have these people come down. And, and they're going to advise them how these can be enhanced, how their, 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 their systems can be enhanced for the benefit of the entire community. Not just the meat story that happened here, the one story and the history of the forensic investigation. No, we want to know if we aren't perfect, what is wrong? How much do we have to change? Tell us. And they, and they publicly say this. These people deserve a big, uh, a, a big award, a credit, whatever. I wrote them an email right away. I wrote them in right away, and I said, I, I, I always loved it, this thing, and I, I hope I'll be able to give them a, a, some space in the magazine talking about this because I feel that we should be learning from them. I mean, not, I thought it was amazing about what, 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 what Rabbi Goldstein did about, the, uh, about Shabbos, but now when I see how, they, how honest and up, upstanding and straight they are about talking about this. Now, I, we don't know anything about them. I don't know really you know, what they're in, what's going on behind the scenes. I don't know anything. But I, I would love to have seen a document like this after some of the scandals that happened in America. I didn't hear a thing. And I'm telling you, many, many, many of these things are shoved under the rug. And they do have meetings. There are meetings among rabbis in the organizations, sometimes among rabbis in communities, sometimes rabbis in general, the conscious agencies together. They talk a little bit about it. I've asked the ACO to, um, to, to, to formalize some procedures that should be followed by organizations when there is a, a scandal that happens. And, I, and after this one, which I'm seeing now, and I see ACO's involved in it, I'm going to go to them again, Blinether, and ask them again to try to create some kind of um, protocol of how you handle a situation, how you inform the people, how transparent you have to be, what must be fixed, what must be checked. Look, you know, it's like going to the, where the car isn't working. You've got to take it to the mechanics, and you've got to do what he says. You've got to do a lot of stuff. You can't just say, I know how to do it. I'll just, you know, push this button off here or something. It doesn't work. So I, I, that's, I'm very excited about that. And I, I, I see that we can learn from everybody in the world. We call them Scalti, and you can learn from everybody in the world and wherever it's spread out. I'm gonna, we have 10, 9 minutes left. Uh, I'm going to try to sneak in a little bit of this. I don't know if we'll be able to ever do it again. We might do it again, again the part next time. This is a survey of Yeshiva High School graduates put out by Zvi, Z-V-I, Grumet, G-R-U-M-E-T, a gentleman who lives in Eretz Israel. He's been teaching in yeshivas for, maybe, I don't know, many, many, many years. But this was just done 2018. And uh, he's basically dealing with yeshiva high schools that are in the more modern area. Um, the people, here's the way to figure it out, because they didn't give you the exact schools. But he said that the graduates of those schools go to these in Eretz Israel. They go to Yeshiva's Hartzion, Eretz Svi, Mavaseret, Shalavim, Hakotel, Karen Biyavna, or Yerushalayim. That's an idea of some of these schools the boys go to and the girls go to. Lindenbaum, Horava, I don't even know what this one is, 
Midrasha Moriah, Migdal Oz, and Orot. Those are some of the, uh, I don't know all these uh, names, so they have abbreviations, I'm finished. <laughs> anyway, this is, uh, so this is a, a, a lot of the uh, places that these people go to. And this was made, it was very interesting. It was a study that was done, most of the people were from two, graduated high school since 2004. And uh, some, many, and many of them, like 36% graduated before 2004. I can't give you all the breakdown because we only have another eight minutes, but I'm going to try to give you some very interesting pieces, little pieces from this puzzle. And if you get a chance to look at it, don't be scared now. It's a document that's over 60 pages, but you can get it free over the internet if you needed it. The name of it is called Survey of Yeshiva High School Graduates from Svi Grumet, G-R-U-M-E-T. Okay. One of the things that he found, which is very interesting, but I'm not going to go into it, is how much shift there was from uh, the most extreme from part, they maybe shaved off a little bit of their from kite, and some of the bottom people who were pretty far away who moved up and became more from. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It's got, it's a, I suppose, a social sociology that is sort of the group goes tends to grow, go towards the middle as opposed to the extremes. But the scary part, in my estimation, there are a few scary parts we should mention. Some of it I can't even talk about on the radio. Um, but but one of the scary parts was when he discussed uh, the open orthodoxy, and he mentions that open orthodoxy. Most of the people, and most of, and a lot of the people, uh, at least in in open orthodoxy, pray in egalitarian synagogues. That means mixed seating. So I don't know what it means. Open orthodoxy. It just looks sounds like the orthodoxy just left. I don't understand. It could be open orthodoxy. The OU doesn't espouse mixed seating. I don't know any you know orthodox group that espouses mixed seating. Even the open orthodox don't espouse it, as far as I understand. And so I, I suppose they're praying in uh, in conservative synagogues, and they call themselves open orthodox. So that's a little scary. And uh, then he goes in to discuss how many people became more religious, less religious, and here is a little piece. Uh, I'm, it's also really a shame to do it, but we'll sneak out a little piece. By the way, the worst part of it all, and I, this, I'm, I, didn't, I was not planning to read any of it, so don't worry, you have to get it yourself if you want to see it, is about the hashkafos, about the thought patterns. It seems that the, the that he, he claims that most of the people in that grouping are shifting towards being orthoprax, not orthodox, meaning that their beliefs are not in line with traditional Jewish beliefs, and that practicing mitzvos, if they do, but they're not necessarily working with the hashkafos. And this man himself is in the modern Orthodox world, and so what he says, obviously, you know, is not has no bias. Um, what, let's just read a couple of lines about, about kosher. Or Shabbos, uh, four minutes, my goodness. Uh, here's a little bit about kosher.
because it's tied into how religious they are in general. 6.4% indicated no separation at all between milk and meat. Even though in they, were, they were kids in their parents' home, only 1% was like ate meat and milk together. But now 6.4% is, keeping, is breaking the law of meat and milk. 5.3% indicated no cautious requirements at home. It means, and that was almost negligible that they started out that way. In other words, a significant percentage is dropping the basic laws of kashras. And 9.6% indicated no restrictions on eating out. Woo! Almost 10% of the graduates of yeshiva high schools and girls' yeshiva high schools in the, in, the, in the grouping that he studied, almost 10% no longer eat kosher out. These are these are these are scary things, and then of course he discusses about Shabbos, and he talks about uh, how they view driving on Shabbos, and and how they view electrical equipment on Shabbos, and it seems to be a finding that he has that the idea of what they call half Shabbos, you keep everything, but you got to use a cell phone, so that thing is only a high school deal. When they get out, they break Shabbos using electricity of all types. So these are scary things, and the percentages are all here. And uh, if you want to see it, you can do it. It's Svi Grumet, G-R-U-M-E-T, Survey of Yeshiva High School Graduates. I might quote a couple things from it next time, but I'm not going to go into it too much. It's something not especially appetizing. <laughs> I, I want to uh, just, just but jumping, it, you gotta know it. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what, what the, the, the front letter, uh, the front words of this yeshiva is doing in this place. Why is it called yeshiva? They yeah. went to regular yeshivas. They went to, uh, it would be probably called modern orthodox yeshivas. And some of the people, he had 13% that we would call right, that their parents were right wingers. Which would mean, you know, for, I don't think maybe not Haredi, but maybe close to it, and especially in some communities, maybe they were Haredi. Uh, but what happened is that a certain percentage dropped things afterwards. The real scary part to me was this Hashkafa, and that really answers everything. Yes. Yeah, I remember years ago when I, uh, that somebody said to me, uh, uh, Yosef, uh, how come uh, my son doesn't daven mincha? I said, I said, how he forgets to daven mincha? I said, how can you forget to daven mincha? He said, because she said to me, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my, fa- my husband also forgets the Dava Mincha. Okay, so they fa- followed along. But I just heard today, somebody's yard site, a fellow grew up in Queens when there was no minyanim for Mincha. There was no, well, no big Mincha factory. He says he never forgot the Dava Mincha. If people are forgetting the Dava Mincha, what does that mean? It doesn't mean so much. If it meant something, they got to do it. If you got to do it, you do it. You, however, you do it. I remember my shvail of Shalom running in to, to David Mincha, and, and, and he asked the shayla, "Can he go to a? Can he go to a shul? Because he was working for somebody else. And can he go to David Mincha shul, or can he? Or could you must David wherever he is at the time when Mincha comes and make sure that he, he has to David Mincha? But should he go? Can he go? Can he get the extra time to go to a shul? That was his shayla. Whether on the job is he allowed to go into a shul? That was the shvail's shayla. So, if you want to, you will find 
the time to Davin Mincha. And if you care about the things, then you're not going to uh, be half Shabbos and you're not going to be, you know, 9% not keeping kosher. So I think the time is up and we'll have to pick it up next week. Until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. For Kashrus on the Air, you can reach me if you'd like, 718-336-8544 or Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S at AOL.com. Until next week, have a wonderful week. Oh.